the biggest challenge is that the regulatory framework is not optimized to effectively and efficiently help us achieve net zero targets, but that's where the conversations now have to shift. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 056, number 56 of the Flux Capacitor. When I launched this podcast, I wanted to share with the listener the types of conversations that were already taking place within the electricity sector about the future of the business of electricity and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. These were the sorts of conversations I was often having on the margins of meetings and conferences with industry leaders, stakeholders, government representatives, regulators, and industry partners. I wanted the listener to hear what we've been discussing over coffee, during a taxi ride, over dinner, or stuck in an airport departure lounge. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom. On to today's podcast and today's guest. Indy Bhutani D'Souza, President and CEO of Alexicon Energy. For those with an interest in regulatory issues, you're in for a treat today. Indy was recently named President and CEO of Alexicon Energy, following a distinguished career as one of the foremost regulatory affairs practitioners in the Canadian electricity sector. Indy joined me for a discussion about transitioning from regulatory affairs to the corner office, what government commitments for a net zero electricity grid by 2035 will mean for her company, the role that distribution companies and customers will have to play to meet GHG reduction targets, and the need for regulatory frameworks to be updated to meet the new realities of a net zero world. And we close our conversation with Indy's recommendation for an addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Indy, recorded in early March 2022. Indy, I'm delighted that we're finally able to connect and get you onto the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. The Flex Capacitor is so exciting, and it's such a great way to connect on energy topics. I'm thrilled to be here. It's been—I got to tell you—it's been a lot of—it's uh, been a lot of fun up until now. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad that you're now kind of part of that Flex Capacitor family. Now, why don't we actually start with uh, Alexicon Energy because it's a—it's a, a very new company. It, there, there isn't an obvious uh, geographical signal to tell people who are not in uh, in Central Ontario uh, where the company is and what it does. So, why don't we kick off with that? Sure. So we are fairly young uh, and then fairly old at the same time when you consider our predecessor companies. Alexicon Energy is the product of consolidation in Ontario. Uh, We are almost three years old. April 1st, we will be three years old. Mm -hmm. And we were formed out of the consolidation of the former Viridian Connections and Whitby Hydro. And so with that, uh, the municipalities that we serve span as far east as Gravenhurst, and then in terms of uh, key municipalities, Pickering, Ajax, Whitby, mm-hmm. uh, and on to Belleville and Clarington. Uh, so basically, East GTA. Right. That's a, that's not a pretty... Forgetting, not forgetting Gravenhurst. 
So yeah, to the west, but then over to the east as well. That's a pretty big footprint. It is a very big footprint. Some of it is obviously naturally contiguous, yeah. uh, but then there are uh, areas of discontinuity uh, as well. Yeah, lot, lots of there's been lots of consolidation over the last uh, you know decade, decade and a half in Ontario. How, how from uh, from what you've seen, how has the consolidation gone for Alexicon? Is, is it is it now a company? Um, everybody on, under the same banner, or, or is it still a process that you're going through? I would say a bit of both. Um, yeah. I think that it is. First of all, it's very exciting to be the product of a consolidation and uh, taking this role. Given my personal um, professional background, mm-hmm. I've come from organizations that were products of consolidation as well. Right. So it's exciting because it lends itself to opportunity uh, opportunities that organizations independently might not be able to realize, as we know, economies of scale, those sorts of things. But at the same time, uh, it's also the opportunity to augment and enhance processes mm-hmm. and to take on new opportunities that otherwise uh, wouldn't be in front of Alexicon Energy. Right. And so uh, in terms of are we one company, uh, certainly the systems are integrated and the processes are being integrated. I think our, our team, uh, all of the Alexicon people, mm-hmm. uh, truly the nuts and bolts of how a company runs, they are uh, certainly beginning to feel the one Alexicon culture. Right. And we onboarded 50 new people last year, mm-hmm. so in 2021. So there's a, a good portion of our employee population that isn't part of, like me, isn't part of one of the predecessors. Right. So as we're continuing to move forward, and certainly as we emerge out of um, the working from home and into a hybrid work environment, I think what we will uh, find more and more is that people feel a very great affinity to one Alexicon. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's, uh, that's our effort this year in terms of our focus on employees is continuing to drive our culture journey. Right. Hey, one of the things that I, I ask uh, folks that come on the podcast is about their journey. And I know your, your recent journey has been an interesting one. And, yes. and, and yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to chat a little bit about that because uh, there are um, a, 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 certainly a, a small number of CEOs that have the deep regulatory background that you have. Um, but like even before that, what was what was your journey to your, your kind of your current role? I always make the joke when you were on the, the playground that you did you always dream of first being a regulatory specialist and then yeah, being well, a CEO? <laughs> well, I say to everybody that nobody grows up thinking that they are going to uh-huh. lead regulatory at an energy company <laughs> or an electricity distributor. So certainly that's not in anybody's tick box list yep. for sure. Uh I, I do say that I got bitten by the energy bug mm-hmm. some years ago, now over two decades ago. Um, I was working at PricewaterhouseCoopers in consulting, mm-hmm. and my very last project before leaving consulting and moving into industry was the opening of the retail market for electricity here in Ontario. Okay. And our client was the Ontario Energy Board. Mm-hmm. And I was working with, at that time, uh, setting up the electricity retailers for the opening of a competitive market. So obviously, this is the early 2000s. Yep. The market opened, the market very swiftly closed, and (laughs) we had for a time what we refer to as a hybrid market in Ontario, though I'm not really sure that anyone would actually call it a truly 
hybrid market. Yeah. Now that being said, I moved out of consulting and then into uh, uh, working at two different electricity retailers uh, and then moved on to, and at both points in regulatory and compliance. So mm -hmm. my, uh, my days of regulatory far exceed uh, electricity distribution companies. So all the way back to the beginning of my energy career, I was involved in uh, regulatory uh, government relations and compliance, mm -hmm. but then went into uh, business and commercial market development uh, from a retail perspective. Okay. And after that, um, and this seems very timely now, but so not timely in 2008, I went into carbon markets trading because the federal oh, really? had, had, uh, yeah. Yeah, had um, put out its, um, its uh, legislation related to carbon markets, carbon mm -hmm. offsets, and was uh, a director of project origination for a carbon markets startup, which given that that was 2008 and 2009, and mm. now we're talking about it fast and furious in 2022, clearly it was well before its time, Yeah, but uh, is great foundation for where we are at today. And after that moved into uh, leading regulatory at Horizon Utilities mm -hmm. and then onto Electra Utilities, both here in Ontario. And it, it was a tremendous 12 year run of leading regulatory, mm -hmm. uh, but it was an amazing foundation for the role that I currently hold. Yeah. So, what are what are the sorts of things that you're you're bringing to the table now as somebody who is, has spent a, a significant uh, part of uh, of her career in regulatory to uh, to the CEO role? Well, I would say that um, when people would ask me how many people were on my regulatory team, I would jokingly say, "Wait, how many people are in the organization?" Yeah. Everybody works for regulatory because yeah. regulatory files the rate applications. It is how we fund the organization. Distribution revenue mm -hmm. is the foundation of driving investments that we want to make uh, in our distribution system as well as general plant. Uh, it's also how we all get paid, right? Because that's where our OMA comes from. Our operating uh, expenses are funded through distribution revenue. So yep. uh, the, the running joke, of course, then if you're regulatory, is not only that everybody works for regulatory, but we earn our revenue at the corner of Young and Eglinton, which is where our regulator here in Ontario mm -hmm. is situated, the Ontario Energy Board. But I think the biggest thing that people don't necessarily ap appreciate when you lead major rate applications is that the, the rate application tells the organization's story, truly right. from tip to tail. Yeah, It is about the human resources, the hiring, the composition of your, from your executive team through every position, the split between union and non-union. Mm -hmm. It touches upon all areas of capital investment, including those that are general plant related. It talks about reliability and where you have issues related to reliability. Mm. The you know major weather events that the organization has undertaken, and then of course it's forward looking. Right. Where is the organization looking to go over the next five years? And therefore, from a rate electricity distribution rates perspective, what are the drivers of the rates that or the rates that you that the organization is seeking from its regulator? Mm -hmm. When you consider all of that, there's pretty well no part of the organization that someone who's uh, leading regulatory 
doesn't interact with. Right. Uh, it's it's full on. And the interesting thing is that you're working with people and teams that don't necessarily report to you, mm-hmm. you and often don't, in fact, uh, of course. And then you need to convince them about why them helping you, them telling their story is important for the broader organization or for the regulator to understand. And in order to sell it, and I, I truly, though I, they, I often joke that regu- uh, regulatory people aren't marketers. Frankly, it's probably the single <laughs> biggest part of the job is yeah. to sell the story and yeah. for uh, to convince people to believe in it and make the investment. Yep. Uh, and so uh, with that, I think that what I bring to this uh, president and CEO role is the knowledge of all areas of an electricity distribution company. There's, there's no area that I haven't interacted with. And the difference now is that I'm leading it. It's mm-hmm. not the deep dive into one silo or selling this at, um, in front of a regulator, though from a strategic perspective, now I'm guiding and informing my team and listening to the uh, opportunities and the risks that we face, and then helping them shape our narrative, uh, both from a public policy perspective and the elements that we wish to advocate for, as well as from a regulator's perspective. So I, I think it's 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 probably an amazing training ground. Regulator is an amazing training ground for anybody who works for an energy company. But certainly, as a foundation to this role, I, I think I'm. I, I believe that I'm very well placed. I see and, and have seen those connections in the past in terms of people in regulatory do have to have such a, a, a broad uh, understanding. I hadn't looked at it through the lens of marketing. That's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's an interesting perspective. And you're, you're absolutely right. If you are successful at being able to market and, and sell ideas to the regulator, which has got to be one of the toughest audiences out there. Um, Indeed. Other stakeholders are, are, yeah, there are, are another audience that you need to speak to, but they're, they're not as, um, uh, often not as challenging to be able to get through because they, the, the level of understanding and the depth of knowledge of the regulator is, is so much higher than most other, other stakeholders. And you're absolutely right. And then the other piece that we can't forget is that there are um, consumer representatives, so interveners, yeah. Yeah. that are a part of that regulatory process. And though- And, and in Ontario in particular, they play a, a very robust role in the process, don't they? They do, and it's very different from uh, across the country. Though, yeah. uh, th- uh, throughout the country, there are uh, consumer advocate representatives, uh, but they do take different uh, shapes and forms depending mm-hmm. on which, which part of our country you're in. But that being said, it's still- managing those competing views. Mm-hmm. Uh, the utility uh, goes into a rate application process or an adjudicative process, uh, hand on heart, trying to sell the story, yeah. uh, which we firmly believe in. Right. And it's, it isn't, uh, unlike a court of law, it isn't the innocent until proven guilty. It does feel very much <laughs> like quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, we yeah. don't believe you, but okay try and sell your story and we'll see where we get to. <laughs> so it does, it does feel like a little bit of the opposite, but yeah. um, at the end of the day, both it's both storytelling and it's also a tremendous amount of marketing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Hey, one of the stories that, w- that now we're, we're being challenged to tell is the story of uh, what we are doing and what we're going to do to be able to, to meet uh, our greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. Um, the, the most immediate one for our sector is you know, 2035 net zero electricity grid. What's that looking like for Alexacon, and you know, how how big a lift is that for you? Because I know it it is different for different companies. Um, mm-hmm. But what is what is that challenge looking like for for your company? Well, it's interesting because, as I said uh, several years ago, well before its time, I was involved in this area. Though it's yeah. it's almost amazing, like makes your head spin at how quickly. Uh, coming out of, I guess it was totally out of cop, out of the cop in Scotland that mm-hmm. all of a sudden everybody finally bought in and believed that we need to actually do something and that time has finally come. Right. But the, the piece that was, uh, that is staggering still to me is that that time has come so quickly yeah. and that the movement uh, has taken hold so quickly. So you don't, mm-hmm. there isn't, um, though the provincial government here in Ontario hasn't necessarily set out its net zero targets, we know that the federal government has, municipalities have. Mm-hmm. And so at Alexicon Energy, we're proactively innovating and we're expanding our capabilities, uh, though our challenge, and you might not be surprised that I'm touching upon this, one of the challenges will be the current regulatory framework to help right. prepare to meet. Canada's 2035 decarbonization goals, and and certainly more locally, those of our municipalities who are are, are our municipal shareholders. Mm-hmm. And so we're focused on providing uh, customers with tools and resources. We, Durham Region, which is where Electricon Energy is largely located uh, mm-hmm. in Ontario, is one of the fast, the fastest, one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing region now in Ontario. Right. Tremendous amount of growth and expansion. And so we're doing our very best to um, assist our communities, both commercial and industrial customers to come out of the pandemic and economic recovery, but then at the same time, start uh, considering um, what it looks like to embrace new technologies that will help reduce emissions. And so mm-hmm. we have three critical goals that we're looking at over the next five years. We're stabilizing our operations so that you started with what's it like to be a consolidated entity. Yeah. Time waits for no corporation. So right. it doesn't matter that we're still um, developing our way forward as a lexicon energy kind of three years in, but we're faced with stabilizing our operational plans that are a product of our merger three years ago. Yep. And, then in, and then enhancing economic development and our strategic investment pillars that are tied to our strategic plan in order to enable the net zero future for our customers mm-hmm. and our shareholders in our communities. And it's interesting because all five of the lexicons shareholder municipalities have declared a climate emergency. And so we're working with our shareholder municipalities to help them realize the well, create and then realize the plans that they have in order to reduce emissions, support the adoption of electric vehicles, retrofit buildings, and then of course incorporate more renewable energy sources. And then unique in Ontario is that we're facing um, emerging needs and the discussion is now happening in a robust fashion around resource adequacy. We're seeing the provincial government here talk about and enable customer choice 
And now sustainability has to be part of that dialogue as well. And it's, it's interesting to think that we're uh, facing this supply deficiency in Ontario for the first time in, I think, greater than a decade for sure. And so it means that there will be a need for incremental uh, supply. And mm -hmm. I believe that distributors uh, are, need to be a part of that dialogue and that equation. So mm -hmm. I think we have a role to play. I'm working with our board of directors, my executive team, and then we're advocating for the penetration of distributed energy resources mm -hmm. and other non-wires alternatives that can be enabled at the distribution level. I think that if we only look at changing the supply mix and shoring up the supply mix here in Ontario from a uh, bulk system or yeah. from a central perspective and not yeah. consider the distribution system and what distributors can con uh, contribute uh, we are first sorely missing out on a key opportunity, but mm -hmm. time is not our friend. And there are other, there are many tools in our toolbox. We need to leverage all of them. Yeah. So going from bulk to distributor, but then when you're talking about distributed energy resources, you're talking right down to the, to the customer and, and potentially beyond the, beyond the meter. That's right. How does that, how does that relationship uh, going to, going to work uh, for Alexicon? What are you doing in terms of, or what are you planning to do to in, engage the customer? um in uh, in in the 2035 challenge you know it's interesting because the custom we know that and we've we've heard customers i mean it's kind of the national uh the national conversation that mm. um the environment and sustainability uh the idea of uh, climate change initiatives needing to be central um and net zero uh customers um who are both ratepayers and um uh voters embracing this notion of net zero. I mean, that's pan-Canadian. Yep. But when it comes to delivering on that, I mean, part of the problem is that there's a cost associated with all of these investments. Mm -hmm. What customers don't realize is how much that's going to cost. And so as good stewards of the system, not only do we need to uh, be mindful of creating that sustainable future and delivering on net zero targets, but we also need to manage the costs for our customers. Right. And on a day like today, when you know it's a different fuel, but gasoline prices are through the roof, um, it is it's quite unbelievable that um, it's 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 unbelievable that fuels and uh, energy are so top of mind for customers. Ex mm -hmm. Except that I'm not sure that they are even aware of how they can play a role. Now the easy parts are that uh, customers are interested more than ever. This is the confluence between electrification and the gas prices that we're seeing. Yeah. Uh, customers are interested more than ever on elect in electric vehicles and mm -hmm. electrification. And so I think that's probably the single easiest way. But then on top of that, uh, and you know, recent we recently surveyed our customers and it was clear that almost 50% of our customers were uh, interested in making an EV investment in the next five years. Mm -hmm. However, only, um, only a portion of that, 25% of customers are interested in alternative forms of energy, distributed energy resources, right. uh, self-generation, those sorts of things, in large part because I think conceptually, one understands what an electric vehicle is. Mm -hmm. And the idea of battery storage and um, uh solar panels on your house, like on your roof, and how that all connects, how that takes you off the grid or how you can island a community 
uh, in a microgrid, uh, those are foreign concepts to yeah. customers. So there's yeah. there's a lot of education that needs to happen as well as fast work and investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where there's a challenge in terms of timing for sure, uh, because to date, um, there's there are uh, regulatory barriers to some of the ideas that I've just espoused. So mm-hmm. here in Ontario. Yeah, well, let's unpack that a little bit. You know the. The, the we certainly don't have a regulatory construct that, that's built to 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 deliver GHG reductions. We have a yeah. you know, regulatory construct that's 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 built to deliver uh, you know reliable low costs uh, to to the customer. Uh, how boy <laughs> isn't that the the sixty four thousand dollar question? Uh, mm-hmm. How uh, how does the regulatory compact have to change? To be able to uh, enable um, the the vision for you know twenty thirty five and twenty fifty, because it it currently doesn't. No, it doesn't. And I mean, <laughs> I almost feel bad for regulators. I don't. Not almost. I feel bad for regulators because <laughs> okay. you know, a regulatory framework is not, uh, despite where uh, regulatory modernization trends are going, and the idea of being more responsive is certainly top of mind for most regulators in the country, certainly for our regulator here in Ontario, in terms of the Ontario Energy Board's focus on modernization, removing red tape. However, uh, as we said at the top of this discussion, net zero targets have come out of nowhere. Like Mm -hmm. two years ago, we were not talking about net zero or plans for 2035. I think it was uh, an esoteric conversation, uh, certainly, In concept, we all embraced that climate change was very bad and that we needed to do something about it, but the impetus certainly wasn't there. So then when you consider, or if you layer on the regulatory compact, but that by definition is not nimble or agile, where does that leave a regulator? And I'm I'm thrilled that I'm going to be part of Electricity Canada's uh, discussion at the Camp Hook conference uh, in May, where we'll discuss this further. But... I think for now, the biggest challenge is that the regulatory framework is not optimized to effectively uh, and efficiently help us achieve net zero targets, but that's where the conversations now have to shift. I think um, there are topics of our time that are simply unavoidable. Mm-hmm. And you know we've seen, um, we've seen regulators move towards allowing and understanding the need for cyber uh, security-related investments by distribution companies. If I was thinking about one of the top risks that our organizations or any company today uh, is facing, mm-hmm. uh, I think similarly that dialogue has to happen with regulators in terms of um, net zero targets are not uh, they're not the nice to have. We're not doing it. Just distributors won't be making those investment investments just because we are altruistic. Right. Uh, it's yeah. it's about a need. Yeah. And it is also about, uh, at the end of the day, when a regulator is evaluating a rate application or the investment needs of the, um, the entity in front of it, they're presumably, and certainly part of the tenets of, the, um, of each of the regulators, is to protect customers. Mm-hmm. Well, protecting customers has an environmental piece now to it as well. Yes, and so yeah. that environmental piece needs to be considered, and the uh, investment that uh, distributors will need to make um, needs to be solved. Meaning, how do we fund it? Mm-hmm. And so it's not different from uh, 
allowing cybersecurity investment. Uh, it's uh, not different from other types of risk mitigators that regulators would expect distributors to invest in and that yeah. distribution rates could fund. But uh, certainly, at, at least here in Ontario, and the conversation has been happening across the country about uh, who gets to invest in distributed energy resources, what are the alternatives to um, the various forms of generation uh, and uh, shoring up supply, those mm -hmm. dialogues have to happen. Certainly uh, in Ontario, we are seeing our independent electricity system operator and our regulator bring stakeholders together uh, in order to have um, a collective dialogue. And I think we have an upcoming uh, event later in April of this year. And that hasn't happened often, uh, mm -hmm. this overall coordination between various entities. But mm -hmm. part of that dialogue has to now tie back to um, the, the need for achieving net zero targets and what that longer term focus, because rate applications tend to be five years, what that longer term focus looks like. Yeah. Hey, um, I, I saw uh, um, some information about one of the projects that you've been involved in, just you know, speaking of uh, working with customers and, and new approaches, a microgrid uh, project in Pickering. Yes. Uh, yeah. What, what's so what's that all about? And well, it's uh, it's very exciting is what it's all about. It's called Altona Towns. Yeah. And a few years ago, um, our predecessor companies had an idea of creating a fully functioning and pre-planned microgrid community then of the future, though it is the here and now. Right. And the idea yep. was to be able to. And so it was a pilot. It was <laughs> meant to test, develop and launch the next generation of technologies that could take our current electricity distribution systems and move them into modern uh, digitally enabled grids. Mm -hmm. And so these modern smart grid communities would then provide our, our residents, our customers um, with backup power when the grid, uh, when maybe when part of the grid had failed, when we, were, when we had an outage, as well as support rooftop solar. Uh, so through rooftop solar, battery storage, mm -hmm. and would also um, enable electric vehicles. So the uh, ability to charge the electric vehicles at these newly constructed homes as well. Right. And so we, we were fortunate because we partnered with uh, Marshall Homes as well as Opus One. Mm -hmm. And collectively, so the three-way partnership, uh, we sought funding from, the, uh, from Ontario's uh, system operator, the ISO, right. and from the provincial government. And we created Altona Towns, which, as you said, is in Pickering, which mm -hmm. is just east of Toronto. So when you consider that 45,000 new residential homes are built in Ontario every year, this project, which is the first of its kind in Canada and went live this past summer, it will demonstrate how homeowners can benefit while reducing the amount of electricity that is needed in their homes, like meaning the amount of electricity that's needed from the grid, so how much they draw. And it has the opportunity to make the provincial electricity system more affordable. So the community includes rooftop solar, a lithium ion battery storage, electric vehicle charging stations, smart, um, innovative smart metering for the community you use, and then a distributed energy management system that's integrated to our distribution system okay. and coordinates components of this microgrid. So it's, it's integrated to our uh, distribution operations. 
and it incorporates microgrid assisted feeders and automate. So it enables automation features like the ones that we've we we've talked about mm-hmm. but it act, this uh this microgrid community actually enables the peak shaving load shifting it has the backup power right. demand response voltage control and renewable power integration which all sounds pretty fantastic if mm-hmm. you ask me um and it gives uh these homeowners resiliency and reliability but it's i mean i i often joke that uh, the pilots are great but we need to move beyond the science project. Yeah. So this is tremendous. And the learnings that we are gaining, both of consumer behavior and the integration to our distribution system and our able to, our ability to control and see responses, that part is tremendous. We And we're working closely with the developer community, um, but we need to see, we need to have the opportunity, and this is part of uh, the challenge in the regulatory framework as well, and goes back to the advocacy for the investment in distributed energy resources by distributors as well as third parties. Mm-hmm. Um, we need we need for a framework that enables enables that. And we've been having those discussions in Ontario certainly for several years, right. but the time is now in terms of traction and decision making because we have 2035 targets um, more broadly, but then we also have. Um, in the nearer term, we also have um, supply challenges in in Ontario. Yeah. So, so what's so, the status? What's the status of, of that particular project? It's the, the, you've got houses that are, are being built now, or they are no. We did a ribbon cutting in ah. November. It was cold out. I, I'm pretty sure it was November. <laughs> okay. And uh, I think it was November. And um, People are living in the uh, in the homes, and your so, and your distribution control center is linked into into that microgrid. And- yeah, so it's tremendous. It's a it's it's a tremendous opportunity. We need to continue to be able to do more. Okay, so it isn't a science project. It's it's well, an actual. It, it's a science project to the extent <laughs> that it's small and it's yeah. a pilot. We need to be able to expand beyond just a pilot to uh, support um, this kind of uh, opportunity with just uh, with developers as new homes are built, and right. um, so that's the it's the microgrid communities of the future. Yeah. Except that the time is now. Right. Well, hey, um, I, I'm wondering. Uh, it's been a little while now that that you've being a CEO, um, <laughs> what's the biggest challenge uh, that you see now uh, as CEO of a, a, an electricity company when it comes to, particularly when it comes to supporting the, the transition to net zero? What's, what's top of the list for you now from, as a challenge? You know, it, it's, it's such a good question. Um, there's, there's the challenge and there's the opportunity. So electricity is pretty cool now. Like we could not be more popular if we tried uh, electrification of everything. I mean, it's it's music to my ears as uh, the CEO of an electricity distribution company. So that part is absolutely fantastic. However, when you consider that in order to get to net zero, it means that we're finding ways to substitute fossil fuels with, I mean, broadly, and I mean, the grid in Ontario is far cleaner than pretty well elsewhere in the world, but 
we need increasingly clean zero carbon electricity in the most cost effective and efficient way. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that is what keeps me up at night, that it's, it's amazing that we're popular. And, you know, a couple of years ago we were, and I, you know, this is so 2019, like pre pandemic, the dialogue. Yeah. Like, is there, was there a life before this? I can't recall, but pre 2019, the dialogue and the narrative related to an electricity distribution company was all around the death spiral. Yeah. What's going to happen? You know, we've considered the four D's decarbonization, decentralization, democratization, digitalization. It was all about, it was all anchored on this notion that customers were going to defect Mm -hmm. and that this was the death spiral of the utility stranded assets would abound. And what were we going to do? It was very much a woe is me. Yeah. And now when you consider where we sit today in 2022, like I said, we are cool. It, it is all about electrification of everything. We are needed more than ever. The grid is needed. The distribution system is absolutely fundamental to life going forward. But the challenge then is how do you do that? How do you deliver on the uh, supply needs that customers will have. Hmm. How does that electrification happen? How do you make investments in the grid that generally isn't teed up for two-way supply yep. or two-way flow? Yeah. So there are, there are asset investment needs in the distribution system that those are the new pieces, but then there's the ongoing aging of the distribution system and the need to renew it, which has been the story that many distributors um, across the world, frankly, anyone that's heavy into asset investment would be making, would be saying that there's a need to renew the assets. So asset renewal is key, but then asset investment for two-way also necessary, Mm -hmm. smart two-way flow. And then at the same time, and perhaps most importantly, how do you do that cost effectively? And how do you do it in the timeframe that we need it? Yeah. And so I think that when I, when I look out into this year and beyond, uh, I'm thrilled that we are not talking death spiral anymore and that we are front and center of all dialogue. But then I have this overwhelming um, uh, sense of uh, concern or trepidation, at least, that at the end of the day, if we all get it wrong, mm. the bill comes from Alexicon Energy or whichever distributor serves a customer. We are the face to the customer. We know our customers best. We are a trusted brand. But when something messes up, we are the ones that they tweet about, that they text, that they call, that they post on social media. And so we need to get it right. And um, we need to get it right in a very short Mm timeframe. So I think that um, if I had to think of the biggest challenge right now, you know, a year ago, thinking about moving into this role, I would have said that the biggest challenges were cybersecurity related. That's always top of mind and outages, always having the ability to continually provide reliable electricity service. Yep. But now this is quickly, an op- it's a tremendous opportunity, but it's edging, edging up on, and if not is tied with those other risks. So if we were, if we were gonna speculate in terms of what the, the, the biggest priorities will be for the next five years? Or would, would, uh, would, would that sort of encapsulate it? I, I mean, I think so. I, we're, at a, we're at its key inflection point yeah. for our sector. Yeah. Um, there's scarcity of supply. There's needs for new supply. 
uh, there's evolving technology, there's uh, consumer desires that are changing rapidly. And then I think that um, the other thing that's very interesting and an opportunity, but a challenge as well, is that especially over these last two years of uh, COVID, people working from home, um, businesses being shuttered, Mm. uh, Amazon is everything to everyone. Yeah. So the reason I bring up Amazon is because it's this instantaneous, I want X, I click on Y, Mm. and Z shows up at my door almost before I finish finish the transaction on my phone. And so that is also driving and changing consumer behavior and consumer expectations. The expectations in particular, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so when I consider what, um, what customers will want out of our companies, it's not only the, the risks that we need to address that I just spoke about, but it's also about, um, about being responsive to customers in a way that, uh, that we've not had to be responsive before. And I don't mean that we weren't uh, consumer focused, but, but you know, people flick the switch and the lights go on and life is good. Mm. But now, pardon the pun, but, if, but electricity is going to be powering even more mm-hmm. aspects of life than it ever did before. And so uh, being able to respond to that expectation of customers, the desire of customers, and the need for immediacy of responsiveness, uh, I think that's, that's also going to encapsulate what the next five years look like as we roll forward to further, well, to full electrification. Right. Hey, Indy, one of the things that I ask uh, folks that, that uh, join the podcast is, is about a book and uh, a book uh, that you know, either uh, you've read or you're reading that you would recommend to the listener um, or that you would recommend to me. The, the book, how, how about this? The book that I should read so that when uh, we see each other uh, at the regulatory workshop in early May, that we can talk about. So okay. what book would that be? Um, well, I'm reading a book called Insight, mm-hmm. and it's by Tasha Urich. And, you know, the brief overview is that research shows that the majority of people overestimate their sense of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So 90% of people think that they're self-aware, and research says that only 15% of us actually are self-aware. Okay. And so um, it's important to understand what self-awareness is. And it's more than just understanding how we behave. It's about understanding why we behave the way we do and the impact that that behavior has on others. Why that's important to me uh, is, I think, uh, uh, frankly, I think it's extremely timely. Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, as now president and CEO of Alexicon Energy, um, everything that I do is going to have an impact on my team and the people around me and in our organization. Right. So it's understand it's, it's reading the book has forced me to step back and understand why I behave the way that I do, which takes time and effort. Uh, It involves a lot of personal reflection um, that goes beyond personality assessments, like the disc and Myers-Briggs, et cetera, that we've all done. Um, And I was, I was thinking a lot more about, as I, as I was reading it, and then certainly in this role, how my behavior affects others. And it's, um, it's required uh, a tremendous amount of courage 
and asking people around me who, where I'm forming new relationships, right? Because I came mm-hmm. from a different organization to take this role. Right. Uh, so newly formed relationships, but still seeking feedback on how uh, my interactions impact others. And so that takes both vulnerability and humility, but mm-hmm. it also drives a better working relationship um, and better relationships just in general. And so um, it's often said that emotional intelligence um, is when you know yourself well enough and you know how to manage yourself. But this is also about knowing how, um, how you can manage your relationships well with others by leveraging off of understanding who you are. So um, my joke through my career has been, look, it's all about me. I'm an only child. But this one actually really does start with you as the individual, but it is all about you that you can, I mean, we've said before, you can manage, you can only manage the way you react to things. That part is entirely true, but understanding how you behave and why you react in certain ways is, uh, I think the right, um, mitigant to overreacting or reacting, um, negatively. And it's the, it also helps to provide grace under pressure because, Mm -hmm. Under pressure, especially in these more senior executive roles, um, that is when you need to be the most graceful and you need to be able to rise up. And uh, that's, I think, a huge benefit to those that are interacting with me. Um, It benefits me. It benefits people around me. And so that's why I think it's a great book for people to be reading. I can't think of something more exciting where you are driving more positive relationships with people around you. What a, a great addition to our, our Flux Capacitor book club, Tasha Uruk's book, Insight, The Surprising Truth About How Others See Us, How We See Ourselves, and Why the Answers Matter More Than We Think. Yep. Fantastic. Indy, it's great to, great to catch up, great to chat. Thanks for, for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate, really appreciate you having me, Francis. Thanks so much. And look forward to actually seeing you face-to-face yes. at, a, at a real meeting where we can continue talking about regulatory stuff as we've done for, I don't know, we've been, we've been chatting about these things for a decade. And Indeed, we have been. Thank you so much. I'm looking Thanks. forward to it. Life in person. It's a new concept. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. The website of this podcast can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca. And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on The Flux Capacitor. Please tune in for future episodes of the podcast, which will include a conversation with the president and CEO of the Canadian Gas Association, Timothy Egan. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.